We're going to look at quite a few passages of Scripture to kind of uh, use to, to supplement and aid where we're going to be in Hebrews 2. And so we'll, uh, we'll get there in just a second. Uh, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't swim in the ocean anymore uh, because in my adulthood I've, I've really just become freaked out by it. But uh, it's, it's just a big interspecies toilet. You realize that. That's, that's what the ocean is. Uh, anyway, the salt, you know, does so much, but it's, it's gross. It is. So, you know, not to ruin that for anybody. Hey, just go crazy. Um, but I don't really like to get in the ocean anymore. However, if my kids pull, I'm glad, I'm a great father. I just go for it, you know. Uh, just kidding. So, anyway, I'm not a big fan of swimming in the ocean. But when I was a kid, I loved it. And I loved it when the waves were written real big. You know, you take like a boogie board out there and you jump with them. And it's, that's a good time. Uh, now it kind of freaks me out. But it's still, it was, that was a good time. And, you know, there's something about swimming in the ocean that, you sort of lose track of what's happening. So uh, you go out, and, and I mean, if you go out kind of far, the waves may get a little big depending on the day, and you may be jumping over them and laughing like a little kid again or whatever, and you do that for, you know, 15 minutes, and then what happens? You, you turn around, and you're like, all right, it's time to walk back, and you go back, and then suddenly you're like, where's my stuff? Where's my party? And it's way down there, right? Because there's this involuntary drift that's happening, you're not even thinking about it. And if you're not sort of jumping or swimming sort of a, just a, a little bit at a time in the direction against that current, what happens? It just kind of carries, and all of a sudden you find yourself 50, 100 yards down, and you're like, man, I didn't even feel that happening. And yet that drift was slowly uh, happening. It's involuntary. It's a noticeable drift that if you weren't swimming away from it, it happens. Unless you're consciously paying attention and combating the drift, you'll be carried further and further away. That drift has a lot of pertinence, an analogy that we're going to look at today in Hebrews 2. The Christian life in this dark world is not lived on a windless, tranquil lake. It is lived on a rushing river. And I got bad news for you. We're working against the current. I'd be willing to bet that the drift has hit a close friend or family member of every man and woman in this room. Maybe even you yourself. Maybe you yourself right now, you feel the drift. I don't know that I've ever preached a more relevant and necessary message than the one that you're about to hear. And I, I've never said that before. And I'm not saying that it's going to be good. It's just important. And so I really am, am pleading with you to open your heart and search your heart this morning. You see, the author of Hebrews, who we don't even know who he is, but he's writing to people that profess to be Christians. And as he's writing this letter, what is woven through it is warning after warning after warning. And what his instruction is, is heed the warning because you're not above the drift. You're not above drifting. And so fellowship this morning, I'm gonna say the same thing to you, is that you may feel a certain way, but heed the warning because you are not above the drift. Let's look at it together. Hebrews 2, one through four. It says, therefore, <clears throat> we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. 
if you were with us last week. And if not, it's okay. I'm going to summarize just really, really quickly. Last week, and we've been going through the book of Hebrews for a couple of weeks now, and we'll go through the entirety of the book of Hebrews in sort of an expository way of preaching through this, this letter, this book. And so last week we saw that what the author was trying to communicate was a, a doctrinal correction, that the churches or church or Christians to whom he's writing, these, these heritage of Jewish believers that have come to a sort of a new way of life and following Jesus as opposed to sticking with their Jewish tradition, he's writing to them and saying, you guys, you got a, a doctrinal problem. And he writes to them to correct them of a specific doctrinal problem, and that's that they had made angels an object of worship. And his correction is that you shouldn't worship angels. They're not objects of worship. They are worshipers, right? And so don't attribute to them glory. They are themselves deflecting glory. And so praise the one that they're meant to be worshiping, which is Christ. He says, basically, stop worshiping angels. Worship the Son, S-O-N. The Son is superior to them. You see, angels are gathered around the throne, the sun sits on it. We should praise the one on the throne. And so what now is going to happen in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, is really unusual. Well, not really unusual because it's sort of a sermon letter. Because what's going to happen is he's going to take an aside. For these next four verses, he's going to step away from sort of a doctrinal unpacking, which we'll get there next week. But here he takes a step back, a step aside and says, you know what, let's pause for a second. After I've unpacked this doctrine, let's apply it to our lives. Does that sound like a sermon to you? That's, that's what I'm about to do, right? Here's the word. Now let's take a step back and let's apply this to our lives. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews now does. He says, speaking of false doctrines, beware of the subtle but lethal danger of drifting. If you're taking notes this morning, I'm going to give you three sort of observations here. The first one is the warning. The warning. And the warning is passive neglect. The warning is passive neglect. It's where the drift begins. It begins with passive neglect. The warning in verse 1, which is lest we drift away, there's the warning, right? But it's by, done by way of, down in verse 3, which says, um, what it says, it was declared first, how, how shall we escape if we, says, neglect such a great salvation? So all I have to say is this. Verse 1, there's a warning, lest we drift. Verse 3 is the means through which that drift happens, and that is neglecting. It's neglecting. The verb for drifting in verse 1 implies effortlessly slipping past. It doesn't even mean primarily doing something that someone should not, so much as it is just letting things slide, right? There's not some big egregious action that is attributed to your drift away. No, he says it just happens incrementally bit by bit, and it's a gradual shift. Let things slide. The warning is of losing grip on that which grants us hope and eternal life. What he's saying is, you have a great salvation, don't neglect it. Don't let it slip. The result is that you may meet and sing songs. You're just kind of implicit. He's saying, you can get together. You're all gathered. You can gather as the church. You can get together, sing songs. You can hear someone teach. But if you have turned from that which gives you hope, if you've turned from Christ Jesus, you have turned from the church and have left the faith. Even if you physically gather, you're gone. And it's not the last time that this author will mention it. In fact, in chapter 3, verse 1, he addresses them as holy brothers and sisters. Holy brothers and sisters, he, he addresses them in, in chapter 3. What that means is that he's addressing the church at large. He's addressing all the believers. He's writing it to all of them. He says, read this to everybody. He's not singling somebody out. He's saying, all of you guys that, that profess that you're part of the church, you profess Christ, this is for everybody. And so if, he, if he's addressing believers, at least professing believers, holy brothers, 
And we can take the logic and see here that what the author is saying is that there are some among you who look the part, who talk the part, talk like you, look like you, behave like you, but have not been given a new heart. In other words, some among you are playing the game. Some among you are playing the game. Beware, lest it be you. Now, what's important to note here, and don't miss this, is that this author is not talking about losing your salvation, okay? He is not talking about someone that has been saved and then lived a certain way of life and then suddenly fell out of salvation. They lost their salvation. That's not what he's saying. He's simply saying, not a matter of losing their salvation, but rather that they will simply be proven to have never had it. And there's other passages of the scripture that we could use to talk about this. 1 John 2, 19. This is John writing to a, a similar situation when he says, they went out from us, the drifters. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, don't miss this, if they had been of us, if they had been a possessor, possessor of salvation, he says, they would have continued with us. A guarantee. If they had been a possessor, they would have continued with us. But they went out, away, drifted, that it might become plain, they all are not of us. Another passage in the same book, Hebrews, chapter 3, verse 12, says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Notice he doesn't say a renewed heart. He says, no, it be in any of you, not a, not a new heart, not a born-again heart, but an evil heart. You can look the part, show up, do the church thing, sing the songs, eat the bread and the juice. Beware, lest you only be a professor. In fact, I keep using that word professor. Uh, I don't mean the person that teaches the class, right? I heard a Korean pastor uh, who had really good things to say on this exact passage, and he talked about the difference between professors and possessors, which I think that I've mentioned now a couple of times as well. Professors and possessors. Again, not professors that teach the course. He's saying professors that say they belong. They profess with their mouths. But there is a great difference between a professor only, merely, and someone that truly possesses a new life in Christ Jesus. And listen, this is not something that that, that pastor or any other pastor or some or me, I'm making this up. It's not the case. Jesus stated this. Professors, did he not say that there will become this some that come to him on that day and say, but, but Jesus, did we not? Did we not pro- prophesy in your name? Did we not do, do all these amazing things in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And what does the Bible say? Jesus says that on that day, I will look at you, the professors. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many are the professors but few are the possessors. And there is a difference. A possessor is a recipient of new life and the spirit of God. They've been, to use Jesus' words in John 3, born again. Hebrews 3, 14, well, just in a few moments, or in a few months when we get there, weeks or however long it is, says, for we, 3, 14, for we have come to, listen, share in Christ. Meet with him, possess him, to share in Christ if we if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now that holding, you see that behind me, right? We've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Here's, here's what that doesn't mean. That holding doesn't mean you gotta work and work and work and at the end you can earn it. If you're good enough, you'll earn it. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is 
holding it, holding to it, affirms that you really had it. If you drift, you never had it. If you hold fast and persevere, it affirms that you are really of us. Does that make sense? It's an important distinction to make. And I, I just want to emphasize that this is not talking about someone losing their salvation. That's not what the author of Hebrews is talking about. That is so antithetical to Scripture. John 10, 27 through 29. Jesus is saying this. He says, my sheep, the ones that belong to me, he says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. They don't neglect me. They don't walk away never to come back again. What do they do? They follow me, he says. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. They will never fall away. They will never perish, he says, and no one, including them, will be able to snatch them from my hand, he says. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. That sounds like eternal security to me, does it not? That sounds like we've been sealed by the Spirit of God, does it not? And yet the warning from the author of Hebrews is, there are some among you who look the part, sing the part, play the part, but they are not of you. And his warning is very simple. Beware the drift. It may be you, he's saying. Beware the drift. Some of you are drifting, he's saying. Are you a mere professor or a possessor? And I think we see that in our passage. Not long ago, I was uh, back there in the office and you know, we're, we're looking into uh, a new directory, and some of you guys are still yet to send in your stuff, and listen, man, we got like six days left, you know? You're just such a procrastinator. I would never do something like that, and you, I'm kidding, I know what it's like. Try to get that in, though. We need just your pictures so we can get your information updated, but look, we were kind of in the early stages of looking through that, and I got my hands on, for the first time, uh, a list of, of our entire uh membership role. It sounds so official. It just means anybody that has ever come in here and said, I want this to be my church family, and they've joined and said, I'm tethering myself to you, and I want this to be my church family. And so we keep record of all those who belong to fellowship as they've said, I want to be part of this church family, and I had a list of all those names, and we have uh, an indicator out next to them that says, like, that they, they've been here regularly re recently, or it's been a while since we've seen them. And so I went through every single name, and it's, it's quite a few. I want to say it's like three or 400 or something. It, it's quite a few names. And I went through every single name, and I kid you guys not, I looked at so many of those names. Going through that church membership thing, I saw names that I'd never seen before. I read names I'd never seen before. Now listen, I've only been here a couple of years, a little over two years. But there were people whose faces I'd never seen before. And you know what that name on the list means? I'm a Christian. I belong to this church. What if you said, that's my wife, I'm in this marriage, and you never went home? That's weird, right? But I saw countless names that I've never seen before. People I've never seen before. And maybe you wouldn't even recognize the names on the list, and you've been here for some time. Now listen, that being said, some of those names, they may be people that are attending another good Bible-believing church, and guess what? Praise God for that, okay? Praise God. If just because they're not on our roll, listen, if they are plugged in and their family and they, they themselves are growing in godliness, praise the Lord. They ain't got to be here. They ain't got to be here. Praise God if people are plugged into a Bible-believing church, but guess what? The vast minority, that is the case of those names, or maybe they have a health condition and they can't be here. And it's like, well, they haven't been in a while because they're, they're shut in. And that's, uh, 
totally understandable. And, and may God have mercy in that situation. Man, I hope that they can return to us soon. There are people that I want to see here, that I have seen here, that they can't be here right now. But that is the vast minority. The majority of the names that I saw are people that have simply drifted away. No tragedy, no big occasion, no big blow up. They just decided one week, you know what, I'm tired, man, I'm, I'm not going to make it this week to church. Maybe a couple weeks go by and they say, man, it's just a tough season of life. We got so much going on and it's just hard to do it, man. We're, that's my only day off and, and we like to sleep and the kids are, you know, it's, it's just hard to get everybody going and, and there. And then it makes two weeks and three weeks and those three weeks turn into three months that turn into three years. And then you say, well, now we can't go back. What, that's going to be so awkward and uncomfortable. But you know what? You know, life's good and we're, we're fine. Drift. And they're just gone. I grew up with people in youth group. And you may have, too, in, the, in your local church that you grew up in in youth I grew up with people that were locked in. They were there every Wednesday night. They were singing and there for preaching and all the events and disciple nows and camps. And now, drift. They are gone. They don't want anything to do with the church. They don't want anything to do with Christ at all, even, some of them. May have made a profession, a profession of faith once upon a time, but that episode and their name on a church membership roll are the only signs of new life in an otherwise godlessly apathetic lifestyle. Now, please hear me say this. Those drifters did not consider, they wouldn't think it even possible that one day they'd be the drifters. Right? No one thinks, you know what? I'm here now, but you know, Six years from now, I may just say, to heck with this place. Nah, Jesus, I don't want anything to do with it. Maybe, maybe I'll come to that point in my life. No one ever thinks that way. Everything's fine, and then it slips, and it slips, and it drifts, and it's just gone. Guys, listen, no one will be saved because they prayed a prayer one day and covered their behind for all of eternity. That is not a biblical approach to salvation and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. No one will be saved because they prayed a prayer in some sanctuary, covered their behind for eternity and said, all right, I got my get out of hell free card. I am out of here. Depart from me. I never knew you. They went away from us because they were not of us. But so it will become clear that they were not all of us. Hebrews 10, 26 and 27 says, for, and don't miss this, for if we go on sinning deliberately, read unrepentantly, say nothing wrong with it, go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, you and I go on sinning, right? We do, but we do so repentantly, hating our sin, warring against our sin, and yet we will never be free from it until God comes back and restores all things as a new creation. We war against it. It's not what he's talking about. He's saying those that go on sinning deliberately and just say, oh well. Fire awaits, he says. Salvation belongs to those that don't just profess 
but have truly given their lives to Jesus and have received, possess new life to persevere. Listen, despite the ebbs and flows, well, I had this season in college. We all did. We will have ebbs and flows. But by God's grace, we will remain steadfast in the end. Repentance and faith. Hebrews 10, 39 then says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And please hear this. Guys, I'm not trying to scare you. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm not trying to make you worry. I'm not trying to make yourself feel like something is, is not there or some sort of manipulation and coercion to boost our numbers. I'm not at all trying to do that. Listen, maybe you yourself have once drifted or feel yourself currently drifting. What I'm simply saying is pay attention. Pay attention. No drifter has ever thought to themselves, one day I may just go. Pay attention. None of us are immune from the drift. It is a clear and present danger in your life, in your family life. The warning. I believe it's well-placed, don't you? It's a well-placed warning. It doesn't stop there. The author then goes to the consequences of that warning, which you sort of already hit on, but the consequences are, number two, reliable retribution. And I don't mean reliable in a positive sense. I mean reliable in that God is a just God who does punish sin in a sense. It is a reliable condemnation that is coming for all who are not put their faith and trust in Christ Jesus. And I'm not trying to scare you. I'm trying to sober you. The author goes from the lesser to the greater in verse 2. He says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, I'll explain that in just a second. He then says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? What he's doing is he's looking back. He's looking back and saying, the, the, the angels brought a message, now the son brings a message. If the, if the, the result of their rejection then was, was retribution, the same is going to be true today. In other words, the law, the Mosaic law was given to God's people by angels. Uh, Deuteronomy 33, 2 says, The Lord came from Sinai, dawned from Sire upon us. He shone, from, uh, shone forth from Mount Paran. It says, he came from ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Stephen, when he was about to be martyred in Acts chapter 7, verse 53, Stephen is speaking and he says, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. It was historical tradition that the Jewish people considered, yes, that God gave them the law, their Bibles, but the angels were the messengers that ushered it in. So, yes, God met Moses on Mount Sinai. The angels delivered it by thousands and gave him the law. You see, God didn't just send Israel the law. He didn't just send it to them. He also assured them that retribution, which that word retribution just means legal sanction, okay? That if there's a violation, there will be a punishment. That's all that word means. And God assured them that if they violate his law, there will be legal sanction. There will be retribution. You see, God didn't just send it. He said that it would come if they neglected it. And the author of Hebrews is here saying, Israel was punished justly. For every transgression then, there was a retribution to come. When they disobeyed, they got a reliable consequence. And guys, God is still the same. God is a God of justice. And here's the author's point. Chapter 1, Jesus is greater than the angels. The end of chapter 1, or now at the end of chapter 2, which we saw last week, but in chapter 2, the reliability of Jesus' message, we saw this last week and this week, the reliability of Jesus' message is greater than the reliability of the angel's message. 
If you could be confident, in other words, that angelic messengers transmitted God's word accurately, how much more confident could we be that his own son transmitted his words accurately? The angel's message is reliable. I'm telling you, the son's message is reliable as well. It goes on, the reliability of it in verses 3 and 4. The second part of verse 3 says, It was declared at first by the Lord, <clears throat> and it was attested to us by those who heard, other disciples, apostles. Verse 4, While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Not to get bogged down here, but just talking about the reliability, that there is retribution coming, legal sanction coming. What he says is, The Lord Jesus proclaimed the message, the apostles and many more eyewitnesses and other disciples proclaimed this message. God's power proclaimed this message, miracles and the Spirit at work, which by the way, when he says the Holy Spirit, he's referring to more than just spiritual gifts, but rather to the ongoing workings of the Spirit of God among them. If you could be confident, in other words, that God's angelic messengers transmitted his words accurately, how much more confident could we be that his own son transmitted his words accurately? But also, he's saying that retribution, legal sanction, we'll read wages. That wages for neglecting Jesus' salvation is greater than the wages for Israel neglecting the law. You see, God had told them, he's got a justice, and there will be punishment if you reject the law. But guys, the punishment for refusing the Christ and his salvation is far more severe Back in verse 2, it says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. Guys, God is a God of justice. Wages are coming. Romans 6.23 talks about those wages, right? Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God, the free gift, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen. We cling to the gospel for literal dear life. We literally cling to the gospel for dear life. There is no other message, whether it be from angels or a motivational speaker, there is no other message, no greater message. No other message has the power to save, rescue, redeem from the retribution that is coming, the wages that are coming, the legal sanction. Guys, God is a God of justice, and there's no way that you and I, sinful people, can escape the retribution that is to come if we do not solely place our faith and trust in the one who took our place, that we could join him in his place. It's the good news of the gospel, and it's the truth. And if the angel's message was reliable, how much more reliable is the message of the son? He's greater. The good news is 1 John 2, verse 1. My little children, John says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but you will. <laughs> but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. Advocate means somebody that's going to fight for us, that says, Father, look not to the retribution that they deserve. Remember, I paid it. Look to me. That's an advocate. And the good news is that you can come into this place today with access to a holy God, not because you've measured up, not because you've been a good person, not because you've been a good husband, a good wife, because at the, at the end of the day, guys, if I go out and just send you with a message of go do better, you will come back here miserable because you haven't. 
but you have an advocate. You have one at the end of the day that says, I took their place. And if you have faith in that advocate, then his salvation is for you. Praise God. Guys, this is serious business. And as I said, I can't overemphasize the importance of this message. It's serious business. The gospel is good news. That's what the word means. It is good news. But listen, only for those who repent of their sin and turn to Christ. The gospel is terrible news for those who do not. Beware the drift. There are consequences. We can't pull punches here. There are consequences. And I would be remiss if I, would, if I didn't come up here and tell you the truth. The third thing, and this is, this is the, the, real, the real application, the real instruction to us. And that, yeah, there's a warning. Yes, there are consequences. But he provides a remedy. There's a remedy. There's something we can do. There is something we can do. Yes, we can have faith and trust in Christ Jesus. We already talked about that. But there's something hands-on that we are called to do to prevent the drift. And that's to pay close attention. To pay close attention. <laughs> Which sounds really um, reductionistic, right? That's it? Pay close attention. There's a lot to be, to be navigated here. You see, before you can paddle, you gotta look up and look around. You're not just gonna bury your head in a boat that's being rushed down these rapids, pushed against the stream, you're not going to just stick the oar out and start paddling. Who even knows what direction you're paddling? You must look up. You must look around. You must pay attention to the drift. That's what he says in verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to, here's the object, to what we have heard, and then there's the warning again, lest we drift away from it. To what we've heard. Pay attention to what we've heard. That means more than just audibly hearing. You've heard a lot of things that you never put to work, right? Maybe you were raised by a mom or dad that reminded you of that. I heard you. Yeah, you heard me. You just weren't listening. Anybody ever hear that? A lot. I heard that a lot. The, the audio went in. It was received. It did not, it was not received, right? It did not go to somewhere where it resonated. And my mom reminded me of that often. Yeah, I know you heard me. You're just not listening, wasn't paying attention. We can hear, but have we really heard? Jesus called out some Pharisees over this in Matthew 13, 13, when he says, Pharisees come to him and say, hey, you know, what's, what's the deal? And he says about the Pharisees, his disciples come up and he says, listen, he says, looking they have not seen and listening they have, they have not heard. So he says, looking they've, they've really not seen and listening they've not heard. In other words, they have, they have sensory reception, but not a mind or heart reception. Paul emphasizes this in Romans 10, 17, when he says, so faith, that is that which uh, we, we hold fast to, to persevere. Faith, he says, comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Don't miss that. It's a simple phrase, faith comes through hearing. What he's saying is, if you hear and receive, it will motivate and, and push forward your faith. Rightly hearing is believing and obeying and submitting. Guys, rightly hearing is not a matter of the ear. It's a matter of the heart right? Rightly hearing is not a matter of the ear, it's a matter of the heart. And some of you have been coming and hearing someone like me preach from this book for a long time, but all you've done is heard it, and you never really listened. 
and the drift is on. The drift is on its way or already occurring. You're downstream and you don't even realize it. And the author of Hebrews, and, and I'm here saying, pay attention. Pay attention. The drift is on. The drift doesn't occur, and this is, this is so important. And, and for me, this was, this was big for me, okay? And maybe for you. The, the drift in your life, you're sort of drifting away. It doesn't happen by big nasty decisions and mistakes. It doesn't happen through the big cataclysmic uh-ohs. If you do nothing, you will drift. You want to drift? Do nothing. You want to find yourself way down the ocean beach from your, from your place? Do nothing. Don't pay attention. Just do nothing. You want to find yourself drifting down the stream? I went to a summer camp, and we were swimming across a river. And the river was, was steady, but it was slow, and I was a little guy. Now I could, you know, I wish I was a little guy. But they were saying, swim across. Come on, Caleb, swim across. And some of my peers had gone before me. They were bigger, and they were better swimmers than me. And I said, I don't know, this freaks me out. Two things, man, claustrophobia, and all of a sudden getting rushed down a stream. I just can't handle it. But I was like, they said, come on, let's go. And so I had to convince myself, mathematically, if I swim at this person, I will end up down there. You hear me? I must swim against the current. And that's exactly what you have to do. Pay attention. If you do nothing, if you just stay on your path and just, well, I'll just, we'll just keep on going and keep on going and I won't pay attention and I'll just live my life, you will find yourself downstream. Pay attention. What must you do to fall away? Simple. You don't have to deny the Christ. You don't have to make some big cataclysmic mistake with huge consequences. You know what you have to do? Nothing. Nothing. And you will drift. And some of you guys have, have nothing your way to a drift and you feel it. You sense it. The word for drift in verse 1 receives its meaning through nautical terms. You put your boat on open water, it doesn't stay in one place. I'll emphasize it again that the Christian life is not lived on a windless, tranquil lake. It is lived on a rushing river, and you are working against the current. If you do nothing, you will drift. Listen, another, to use another analogy, Satan doesn't wish to blow up your faith like an interstate blowout. He prefers a nail in the tire, a slow and steady and unrecognizable leak, and then suddenly you're like, I'm flat. I'm empty. It's gone. And he has manipulatively, just inch by inch by inch, destroyed you. The drift is on. And the remedy is simple. Pay attention. You know what's crazy? We're, we're a chapter and in, in change into this book. This is the first command. Isn't that crazy? Think about how unusual that is. This is the very first command in this book, and I'm going to argue it's a big one. Guys, the Christian life doesn't begin with laboring and working. It begins with watching and listening and looking. This worship gathering requires that you engage, not just that you do nothing. You will waste your time if you come in here and grab a seat and do nothing. You're drift. It doesn't matter that you're here. If you sit in here and do nothing, you will drift. Pay attention. You must engage. 
We offer many ministries here at Fellowship. They're not there just to lull you to sleep, that you can just do nothing all the way downstream. They're there that you will pay attention. We're starting up men's and women's ministries. Those things are there so that you will pay attention to your discipleship, not do nothing. We have Awana and youth for children and for students. Guys, the primary focus of those ministries are not daycare. They're paying attention. You understand that, right? We see that it's important that we don't let your kids just do nothing until they end up downstream. We're helping them pay attention. And I'm not talking about just listening during the lecture. I'm talking about paying attention. I'm talking about being aware that there's greater things in this life than the mundane. There's greater things in this life than the boring status quo that will find yourself downstream. And it's not just when you're here, man. This goes to your home. Your kids, your kids don't fall apart when they grow, when they grow up because when they were kids, you said, all right, I'm going to turn you over to the world, buddy. Life's going to be hard now, but the world's going to get you, and I'm not going to do anything about it. That's not the way that our kids grow up and walk away from the church. You know how they do it? By you sitting on your lazy behind and doing nothing. Just do nothing, and they'll drift, just like you will. You don't drift from Bible intake and prayer by shaking your fist at God. Big cataclysmic, how dare you? That's not the way that you drift from Bible intake and prayer. How do you do it? Nothing. Just do nothing. Guys, pay attention. Pay attention. The drift is on, and the warning is evident. Pay attention. That mental and spiritual awareness is what I'm talking about. And when that mental and spiritual awareness is sincere and real and it's fixed, you know what it then produces? Effort. Action. And it does produce life change. But notice that in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit, they're not big actions. What are the fruit of the Spirit? They're right here. They're, they're paying attention fruit, right? They're fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and so forth and so on. Guys, listen. Loving action comes from a loving heart. A joyful demeanor comes from a joyful heart. A peaceable spirit comes from a peace-filled heart. Patient actions come from a patient heart. Where does it all begin? Right here. How does it get there? Pay attention. Whether you're here or there, pay attention. Because Satan loves nothing more than for you to do nothing all the way downstream. There's no standing still, neutral, in the Christian life. You are in a war, and Satan's strategy of attack isn't the big and the loud. It's the subtle drift. And guys, listen, my goal today is not to instill doubt. And you may be there thinking, I don't even know if I'm a Christian. That may be well-placed. That may be from God. I'm not trying to manipulate you to feel that way. My goal is not to instill doubt in your faith. My goal is is to instill endurance. My goal is to instill perseverance. My goal is to wake you up. Because passive neglect is a clear and present danger, that there are vast consequences of reliable retribution, and the remedy is that we may pay attention.
there's a man named Robert. Robert, when he was in his uh, 20s, 20 years old, he heard and received the gospel under preaching of a great pastor named George Whitfield. You may have heard of him. Robert became a pastor, and uh, he began to write uh, hymns. He began to neglect his spiritual life, though, shortly thereafter, and he began to drift away from God. He left ministry. He stopped writing hymns. He traveled the world to find peace. He developed later uh, some mental illness and, and physical illness. There's a widely told story that one day as Robert was riding in a wagon, there was this really uh, excited lady that was in tow with him uh, and others. And this excited lady asked him as she kind of hummed and sang along what he thought of the hymn that she was singing. Come thou fount of every blessing, uh, tune my heart to, to sing thy grace is what she was humming and singing. And Robert Robinson recognized his hymn from years past. He said, Madam, I am the poor, unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago, and I would give a thousand worlds to enjoy the feelings that I had then, but I'm afraid it's too late. I've drifted too far. The story goes that her response was, but sir, there are streams of mercy never ceasing. This message, I'm sure, cuts like a dagger. And, and maybe you're the one that's prone to wander. And that's been you for a little while. And maybe God's stirring your heart to pay attention, to wake up. You may have been the one that left the God that you once loved. But guys, there are streams of mercy never ceasing. There is always a way back to our Father. And it's not based on the strength of your paddle. It's not based on the merit of your work at it. It is based on his streams of mercy that find themselves rooted in the blood of Jesus. I'm going to ask the praise team to join me. And we're going to have a time of response. Listen, stop it. Stop. Pay attention. It's not time to leave. Mentally, we leave before we leave. Okay? It's time to respond. Don't leave. Pay attention. Heed the warning. You're not above the drift. Use this time as we respond, and we're going to take pause, and they're going to play some instrumental behind while we're doing this, and we'll have a a song in a moment, but the altar call, the time of response, the invitation is now. If God is working in your heart, if you need to renew a commitment with your spouse, with your children, with your Lord, make it now. Don't leave. Pay attention.